This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. Thank you for making time to, uh, to talk to us today, Pascal. Um, we've, we've known each other for quite some time, but um, you are Vice-Chancellor and President of Swinburne Institute of University of Technology. And um, it's a job that you've had probably are you into your third year now. Uh, it will be three years in August, yes. Right. So how time has flown. <laughs> so, <laughs> can I get you to introduce yourself because your story is a really interesting one, and then to um, tell us about the object that you uh, have used to demonstrate your leadership and and um, uh, your your learning uh, capacity. So over to Thank you. Thank you, Judith. And, and just as a preamble indicating that I'm talking to you from the campus at Hawthorne, which is on the, the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. So thrilled to be able to join these interesting conversations that you've been having around the sector and very nice to be able to connect with you once again. Um, so yes, you've introduced my, my formal role, indeed, Vice Chancellor and President of Swinburne University of Technology. And this since the 3rd of August 2020, which means that I took on my role uh, on day one of stage four lockdown in Melbourne, uh, which means that uh, even though I'm just getting close to the third year in the job, it's been for the first at least half of that time, a very unusual time. Um, very, very strange circumstances where, where some students were here and most were not, where staff were not here, and indeed many of them have not really returned. So um, a, a time of great, um, of great change, a time that was not as traumatizing perhaps for Swinburne as it might have been in other institutions because we had been pioneers in relation to online learning, having created a joint venture with SEEK in, uh, in 2011. I came to Swinburne from another institution that is a very different one, a group of eight universities, the University of Adelaide, where I um, first arrived as a fresh-faced um, lecturer from New Zealand of all places, which is where I did my, my PhD. So had a long career at uh, the University of Adelaide from lecturer right up to Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic, who was pretty much in charge of everything except for research. So the international, the, the um, online learning and the experimentation around MOOCs, et cetera. So I have been now in the sector for many, many years in Australasia, I suppose, for most of it, although I was before New Zealand, I was in the US. And of course, my accent continues to betray that I am French originally. So a, a very unusual, certainly the, the, the most direct um, the, the most direct route between A and B was certainly not a straight line in my case. Um, it, it, it was a, a, a long and widening road, uh, but one that I continue to be very energized and, and uh, enthusiastic about. And, and the object that I brought is actually my trusted iPad. Um, not so much for the technology that it is, but for the symbol that it is, that in this one iPad, there is more knowledge than in this glorious 
Bibliothèque at Sorbonne. I've been a, a visiting visitor at, at a visiting professor at Sorbonne for many many years. There is this beautiful building uh, which is uh, across from the Pantheon, floors and floors of books, uh, students queuing in order to be in there. And I have as much content and knowledge on this iPad than all of it, and perhaps all of it plus. The, the libraries of many other esteemed uh, institutions. I, I don't think people are, you know, whenever we give statistics about how much more data a little computer can now process uh, compared to the big machineries that were taking a hanger, uh, you know, we don't realize just how content has been really made available. And the kind of equity and diversity benefit that comes from that is an unbelievably strong. Um, but also with that uh, comes a mandate for educators to feel that their role is no longer about imparting content because it is on hand and it is light and transportable and, and, and pretty much universal. So the role of an educator today um, is a different one. What I, I like to describe as a, we are coaches of learning now and we are, we are curators of experiences we are no longer the holder of content. And it's a jolly good thing. Um, so I'm, I'm embracing what, what change uh, is bringing to the sector. And I am anticipating the change that the sector can bring to change. I like that idea of being a curator of experience. Can you unpack that a bit for me? Because what, what does that mean for the students that come to Swinburne? And what does it mean for you as curating your own experience as a learner? So I think I, I caught on to that um, uh, sort of reasonably early, I guess, that no amount of teaching will, um, will force um, a, comm a commensurate level of learning from the learner. So at some point, it, it, it has to stop being a confrontational thing of, I will teach you and you will learn, which is, you know, having been raised a Catholic, I certainly have a strong sense of education being in that very kind of uh, uh, um, situation. Being a curator of experience is actually recognizing that the learner, and there are many types of, of learners out there, um, learners need to engage in the learning for it to be successful. And they will engage in that learning through the traditional way of reading papers and getting ready for exams and all the rest of it. But if you ask people, the things that are more memorable in terms of their learning in the past, they will tell you it's going through a particular experience, doing something, experiencing a crisis, resolving a problem. It's got an active participation component to it. And that means that really the way to maximize learning outcomes is to figure out just what are the circumstances in which this learner is most capable of acquiring that capacity that we're trying to develop and grow. And, and then try to curate more of these opportunities for learning. And, and it is best illustrated in what is the strength of Swinburne, but also something that is a hallmark of my own education experience back in the Grande Ecole in, in France. That notion that the work experience is really a very important part. And strangely enough, in Australia, there is this dichotomization where, you know, the practical stuff is here, the lower end, and then there's the kind of theoretical stuff which is presented as the, as the ultimate. 
But if you if you think about it, and I come from a group of eight universities, so I know this to be true, that there is this dichotomy in people's mind. The most vocational type of degree is a medical degree. And nobody in a group of eight will tell you they do vocational education, but my word, are they doing it? Because you can't be a good doctor if you've never been at the bedside of a patient. Nor can you be a good lawyer if you haven't been in the moot court before you go and defend some, somebody's, um, somebody's case. So to me, this is not a dichotomy, it's a continuum. There are things that are clearly more applied and other things that are less so. But the curator of experience is able to, um, and it is a cr creative process, imagine the occasion and circumstances in which a learner is best placed to acquire that learning. And whether it be a work placement, whether it be a simulation, whether it be a problem-based learning, whether it be some project, um, it doesn't matter. And I would say, depending on the discipline and depending on the learning outcome you're seeking, a different type of experience would be curated. It is one of the reasons, for instance, Judith, why I have been such a dedicated uh, advocate for, for study abroad. Because you know, we keep talking about cultural competency as a, as a graduate attribute. And I personally believe you can't teach that stuff. You can curate the opportunity where a learner will know what it's like to be a foreigner. And that is actually the stepping stone for them becoming much more tolerant of other people who are coming from a different cultural background. And I said this advisedly because I started my my global education journey when I was 11. I decided when I was 11 that I would go and spend a month in England every summer. Um, my sister didn't do it. My sister is a successful academic uh, in, the, um, in the French system. Um, I have always, I think, as, as maybe it was causal, maybe it was an effect, but the, this very early exposure to an environment where you are the foreigner has been, I think, a hallmark of my career coming out of that. And this is why I want to give every student the opportunity to have that same epiphany. Now, whether out of it they decide that they'll never go abroad again, <laughs> whether they decide that they will have a career overseas, the agency is theirs. I'm very big on keeping learners totally in control of their own journey. But I think that until and unless you've had that kind of study abroad experience, I don't reckon you can really claim to be a global citizen or to really understand what cultural competence is all about. And I very often say to students, because in Australia, very often the students say, oh, well, yeah, but I'll do, I'll do one of those gap year uh, and I'll go backpacking around the world. And my response is, you will learn a lot about the backpacking culture you will go into backpacker place and you'll meet backpackers and you'll have backpacker meals and talk about backpacker things. If you go as a student on a campus in another country, whether it's in Malaysia, Japan, or the US, you will be a student amongst many. And then your point of difference is that you're not from that place. And you will prosecute that in that time. It will not be out of a book that you'll figure out a way to do this, but it will make you a a more grown up, more global person. And that's where I kind of understood that the stuff you can't teach, you can curate. You can, you can make it possible for the learner to acquire. And I think there's no higher or better mission that we have than thinking about 
how, whether I'm in the front of the room or not, what is it that I can ensure happens for the learner to pick it up? So you've, in, in, in what you said, I've learned that you've um, studied, started your education in France, went to America to do a master's degree, then went to New Zealand to do a, um, a PhD. What was your undergraduate and postgraduate experience like? given your vision about what you want for students and in terms of what your own experience was? So it, it has to be put in the context of the fact that I, I finished my high school in France. Um, I had actually intended to go to a, a school of physics in, in London, but I was not 18 and my parents disagreed. So, so I ended up doing what you do when you've done a scientific kind of baccalaureate. I went into the university of the bigger, the bigger town. Um, I must say both of my parents um, never finished high school. So, you know, it was a big, a big shift. Um, and I went to the university and did a degree and started a degree in math and physics. And because of the French system, when you entered the university, which you were entitled the minute you finished your 12, there was no eight hour stuff. You just went in. Um, and the choice I had, in fact, was not a choice. I had 13 hours of math, seven hours of physics, five hours of chemistry, and no more language, no more philosophy, no more all of that stuff that I had really enjoyed in high school. And I found that so truncating. <laughs> I found this, I had to, I actually asked for a special uh, dispensation in order to take some English kind of you know language and I was put into the beginners class with a lot of people who just arrived from Morocco or Tunisia and as I said from the age of 11 I had gone to England regularly so my English was pretty good and so to find myself in a class of people who were sort of learning that I am you are he or she is um, was was not exactly what I was after and so it is precisely because I found this pipeline so reductionist that I then decided that I would actually go into the alternative system in France, which is the Grande École. Now the Grande École were created by Napoleon and they have this characteristic of being incredibly closely aligned to the profession or the practical world. So you've got Grande École of Engineering, Grande École of Telecommunication, Grande École of this, Grande École of Architecture, et cetera. And because I was still pretty keen on science and statistics and all the rest of it, but also very keen on languages as well as people more generally, I, cho I chose to go into a grande école of business. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, you have to understand that this was something that I did reluctantly because my parents hadn't gone to university. They were not particularly wealthy. And unlike the university, which is free and open to all in France, it's one of the strong statement of the Republican uh, ethos, the, the Grande École are incredibly selective and incredibly expensive. So, so it was for me a very um, paradoxical choice to then go into, and, and I sat for, you, you have to do a prepa year because you, you, know, you, you can't just go on the strength of your grade. There is a kind of entry requirement, which probably end, at the end is a bit like the ATAR because you've got to be in the very top 1% or whatever it is for that particular school. And I applied for five schools, got into all of the five that I applied for and took the one in Nantes because it had a built-in study abroad in the US. 
in the second year. So I'm nothing if not consistent. <laughs> so, so, um, so I did after one year, usually the prepa takes two years, but I got in after the first year and then had to find a job. So I was, I never had the luxury of being a full-time student. And, and I was blessed with the opportunity to have a night job. And I worked at night from 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. in an institution for uh, uh, teenage moms. So I was really basically through, and, and the business schools, I've got to admit, are because they're elitist and because they're expensive, are an absolute pool of really rich kids uh, or, or kids of people who are already in industry. Um, it's, a, it's a very privileged world. And coming from the background that I came from, I probably could have got spoiled very quickly, except that I actually um, didn't because I was working from 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, in that institution for teenage moms. And I ended up you know, going to hospital and being the one carer that was holding their hands when they gave birth at the age of 12 or 13 and spend nights feeding babies and changing nappies and doing all of these things. And coming back to my business school at 7 a.m. in the morning, very sleep deprived, but also incredibly grounded. And, and I think that both things have been actually very useful to my future career because I've, I've been able to work on very little sleep. And, and I am never forgetting that education is an absolute privilege and it opens doors that would never be open to any one of those girls who, you know, uh, through incest or rape or just youth um, got themselves pregnant and then would not ever be able to actually um, sometimes give their child for adoption because um, when, when the law in France precludes the adoption of children of incest, for instance. So you had, you had what I would consider children, you know, 12 year old condemned to a life that was a completely different life from the life that they could have had had they only been the opportunity to, to get education. And this is a really strong belief that I have. In fact, I made the decision around about that time that I would, I would not have biological children, I would adopt children um, because I believe that there are already too many babies on this planet and that uh, some of them don't have parents. So I'm a kind of conviction educationalist, I have to say, if I were to define myself. Um, but my business school then took me to the US in second year, then I made the dean's list and I was offered uh, a, a spot um, to do a master's if I finished my business school in the top three. And, and then I got a, um, a scholarship that took me to America, to Ohio State. And then I guess the, the light bulb moment is as part of my stipend, um, contract, I had to teach French in the Department of Romance Languages, which I thought was just a delightful name. And I had never taught before, never had any teacher in my family at all, and thoroughly enjoyed getting a group of American people who didn't know where France was, but quite liked the idea of, of learning French. And through, um, you know, multiple terms of tuition, get them to really embrace um, speaking another language and, and for some of them I followed them for years and then they told me when they went to Paris and how they had managed to order their food and and so you know that I, I became aware of the magic of teaching but also the, the the potential for transformation and for opening minds which is something that I, I retain absolutely I'm in awe of because it is about you know crossing walls it is literally about the capacity to traverse something that looked 
hard and difficult and impossible to, to, to traverse. So tell me a bit more about yourself as a teacher, given you, you, you came into teaching by accident. Totally. You realize that oh, I like this. Yeah, so when I arrived in New Zealand, so you've got to, you've got to be mindful that, of course, I, when I was in the US, uh, after my master's, I was offered a scholarship to do the PhD in, in the States. And having lived in Ohio, I decided that, you know, I could not abide with three more winters in Ohio. And one of my supervisors was from New Zealand. And so he said, if I find you a job in New Zealand, would you go? And so, you know, again, true to, true to my kind of sense of adventure, off I went to New Zealand. And I didn't realize then that I would go from the US model of PhD to the English model of PhD, which is basically you meet your supervisor, he or she may or may not be actually a specialist in your area. In, in my case, it wasn't. It was a wool economist that I inherited when I got to Massey University. And basically, we, we broadly agreed on the sort of thing that I was going to do. And then kind of I didn't see him for a couple of years. Uh, you know, it was, it was a very different thing from the PhD in America where you kind of do coursework and then you kind of have your supervisors. It was a completely different thing. Again, cultural competency, you know, you've got to understand the, the, the cultural um, uh, setup. But then I was given uh, an MBA class to teach. And if you are talking about baptism of fire, so I had taught French to a bunch of people. And of course, I knew everything about French and they knew nothing about French, right? So the, the, the usual power and balance, it didn't matter how young I was, I was French, they were not. So I came from a position of great kind of expert power. I was thrown into the lines then uh, when I was made to teach not just the MBA, but the MBA executive, uh, which was taught in Wellington. And so I arrived there, again, fresh-faced, with a, probably a stronger accent than I have now, um, and not having had a day's work in business, right? And I'm, I'm thrown into a group of people who um, are claiming to be, you know, sort of within three, five, ten years of professional expertise. And all of a sudden, the, the balance and this is probably one of the early inkling that I had that to, to be able to kind of get that group to grow and understand more. I was never going to know more than they did. The, the talent was in drawing and ensuring that they had the capacity to learn and that they would put some framework or some, some uh, structure around the way in which they would confront their, their workplace and the kind of uh, practical problems that they were experiencing. So I just kind of almost naturally evolved into a sort of project-based type learning, getting them to develop marketing plans, uh, having them work on some of the things that were relevant to their workplace, working in teams, dealing with the difficulties that come from people um, who work in teams, and thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and not only uh, did I enjoy it, but I've been, you know, I was, I was, I was enjoying very strong um, uh, evaluation, which was great because I was, I was able to really compartmentalize my research and my teaching time because I literally had to get in a car and drive down to Wellington, teach over the weekend, the group of, of MBA executive, then drive back to Palmerston. I don't know if you're familiar with the geography of New Zealand, but you know, about an hour and a half uh, north, I would go to Palmerston North, which is a very small little town and have absolutely no distraction whatsoever from my PhD. 
it was brilliant. And I was then, of course, inclined to do what I also believe in strongly, which is I was not going to do a PhD that, that had no relevance or implications for reality. So I was lucky to be able to secure the sponsorship of both Unilever and Kraft. And so when I did my experiment, which was an, an experimentation where I used basically uh, New Zealand as my lab, I was able to kind of do an, an experimental test of various types of, of um, sales promotion. And I was able to report to an industry partner what, what it is that they, that they, you know, the impact of the investment that they were making. But my teaching was beautifully compartmentalized. It was four days where I would actually be completely available to my students, but also able to, um, to, to really assist and, and, and witness their learning as it happened which was uh, you know, something that I've tried to do for the rest of my career as an academic. I always compartmentalized research and teaching in a way that meant that I could be 100% in my research when I was in my research and 100% in my teaching when I was in my teaching. And this is one of the things that I'm trying to really fight uh, in Sunburn, but I did also at, at Adelaide, this sense that you, know, you should do research and then sometime you might suffer through some of the teaching that you have to do. Both activities are glorious in their own right, and both are very proud endeavors of universities. And I, I never wanted to feel I was compromising my teaching time because I was not doing my research or compromising my research time because I was. I think there is joy in being 100% in whatever it is that you do. So what, what I'm hearing is somebody that for whom curiosity is really important. But experiencing joy yourself, but your students experiencing joy, also be willing to take some risks. Mm. Is there anything else about Pascal, the teacher, the educator, uh, rather than the teacher, the educator, that that you'd like to just ex explore? So I, I think um, I think many. I mean, the, the the process of evaluation of teaching and the kind of expectation that we put. On, on our educator is often to achieve a level of perfection or a level of standardization that is kind of undesirable. I, I found, you know, in my own experience, I found that people were very forgiving of my accent, very forgiving of my quirks, very forgiving, like students are partners in this, right? They're, they're partners in the learning kind of um, endeavor. And very often when you have staff saying, oh, you know, the students are never happy about it. Actually, they will forgive a lot of things if you bring joy, so if, you, if you share the love that you have about your discipline, and if you really engage with wanting them to learn, as opposed to really wanting to teach more or teach in a different way. And so, you know, very often we have people who are absolute legends among students. And they're not the most prepared people. They're not the most sort of, um, you know, digital people. Or they're, not, they're not the people using the most uh, props in their teaching, but they are fundamentally coming from a place of, of love for their discipline, passion for what they do, and also really wanting the students to kind of get something from it, as opposed to them trying to get some sense of affirmation or some sense of superiority or some kind of control, you know, it's, it's a, we see the same in assessment, right? The, 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 the symptom of over assessing, which a lot of educators have, 
um, it is no point in, in, if you're not clear about the learning outcomes, then more exams are not going to solve that. You know, I often make the joke that, that the, the kind of traditional exam doesn't really test anything else than the propensity or capacity of a student to sit very still and write with a pen, none of which is actually going to be something that is expected of them in their workplace. Um, so why are we testing that? <laughs> so what what other challenges do you see facing contemporary students? So the overassessment seems to be one, and I agree with you there. <laughs> what are some of the other challenges? Um, I think one of the one of the things that I'm more worried about is the fact that we seem to expect and impose sometime a single way of thinking. So you know, I think the, the the thing that's good about cultural competency is is the understanding that there are multiple ways of learning, multiple ways of doing things, multiple ways, and and that plurality is to be encouraged. Um, I think we 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 tend to fall into a degree of orthodoxy in university, whether we're talking about online or or face to face or assessment. Um, I really, I really dread the, the view that there can only be one good way to teach because there's not one good way to learn. And so therefore it makes no sense that there could be one good way to, to teach. And so, you know, the, 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 the way the discourse and the, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a social trend, the, 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 the intolerance for orthodoxy is is um, for 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 um, the, the orthogonal thinking is is problematic. I think we should we should tolerate and sometimes challenge, but accept the plurality of thinking. Um, I mean, very often, you know, in my, in my now very long career, I've often I've often thought that people were surprised by what I was saying, but I've never known whether they were surprised because it came from a woman or from a French person. Or from a person with a consumer behavior background. And in many ways, it didn't matter because what mattered is that I was able to say something different, right? But I've never actually, I, I, I don't know where my difference comes from, but I certainly am not shying away from it. So if you could change one thing or, or several things for students in terms of for them to be successful, to them, for them to have the opportunities of diverse uh, contexts in which to learn, what, what would you deliver? What would you provide students with? Well, I think the thing that we need to develop, and, I, and you know, this is a bit of a, of a, um, a battle horse for me, I do, I do think we have to build the resilience of our students. Mm -hmm. And I think we do that through a greater tolerance for failure. Now, the, the, if we unpack that, uh, it goes against the agenda of the government because, you know, at the moment, if a student fails, then the funding is withdrawn and there's a... But if we all reflect on our, own, on our own lives, we learn a fair amount more from failing than we do from succeeding. Because when you succeed, it could just be dumb luck, right? So you can't draw anything from it other than you were possibly there at the right time and you got lucky. When you fail, you sort of have to unpack why it is that you fail. And in, in doing this, there's a really kind of strong learning experience where it may not be at that 
specific moment and it could be a combination of things and and bad luck may also be part of it but there is an element of self-awareness and resilience that comes from knowing why you fail and therefore being able to not fail again or to ameliorate the outcome next time we have students and you know international students more so than domestic students because they come with the burden of the expectations of their family and that's you know typically uh, their parents and then two sets of grandparents sometimes it's their whole village mm -hmm. that that is got this young person coming with expectations of you know wondrous outcomes and if that student fails their world collapses and they've got you know we, we we've seen it in the whole integrity discourse we've seen it in the whole there is no tolerance for failure <laughs> And, and the, the students, even mental health is affected. They don't see themselves as worthy. Um, you know, for a student to kind of question their worth because they failed an accounting exam, I think it's wrong. We have, you know, I was really, really pleased when the School of Design here decided to kind of go all in on doing away with the assessment, the regular assessment, and going by a process where if a student provided a project, and it's often by way of project in the School of Design, if it was not good enough, they were not going to get a number, they were going to be taught to do it again. Because that's exactly what happens in the professional world. In a, you know, in an architect practice, nobody gets a, oh, you've got a three out of 10 for that one, and now pick up another project. The, you know, the reality of it is if it's not good enough, work on it and, until it's good enough. And I reckon that this is what our assessment should be. You know, do, have you acquired enough of the learning outcomes that you can move to the next thing and acquire some more learning? And that, you know, maybe I'm, I'm obsessed with assessment, <laughs> but it seems to me that that having the capacity to to ensure our students do not see it as the end of things because they failed at a task. That how how do we separate their self worth? from their performance at exams, how do we ensure that the assessment is authentic and relates to the learning outcome we seek? And how do we build a stronger person in the process? Because at the end of the day, sure, we want people to have the intellectual weaponry to be able to engage in active debate and all the rest of it. But we also want them to be well in their mind if they, for instance, disagree with another person. And if this other person is a person they care about, all the more reason that they should not feel that they're putting the relationship at risk because they are disagreeing. The, the, that sense of empowerment of ideas rather than personalization of, of um, test results, I think is a really important one. So in, in, in that uh, presentation that you've just described, you are reimagining education. But in, in, in reimagining higher education, given that assessment is at the core, mm -hmm. there will be people who, who block it. There mm -hmm. will be people that are excited by it. And that's both academics and students. So how do you bring everybody along with your, to, to your great vision? Well, yeah, I'm not sure that you can bring everybody along, to be honest. You know, I'm, I'm very, um, as, a, as a consumer behaviour um, 
expert, I guess I do know that the adoption of innovation is a kind of a bell curve and that, you know, you'll have the innovators at the front, but you'll always have the laggards at the back and they probably will never come on board. Um, look, I think it is probably not an exaggeration in saying that because educators are not necessarily um, trained themselves, they inevitably teach or practice their their craft as a teacher through reminiscence. And in fact, you know, in some areas more than, than others, you then have an accreditation body that is full of people who just want it done the way it was done to them, right? So, so you know, the, the magic wand would be amnesia. If I could just make everybody forget how they were taught, and if I could make everybody forget what, what you know, and just think about what is the best way to get to the learning outcomes that are necessary for the future, not the learning outcomes that were required in the past, but you know, now that everybody has got an iPad, now that we don't need to carry around those heavy books, and now that we've got access to universal content, then the learning outcomes are the capacity to synthesize information, to be discriminant in figuring out what, what has been proven from what is being alleged, the, the capacity to maintain um, opposite views and, and come to a sort of a, a view that is not kind of the extreme of one or the extreme of another, but one that is accepting of, of nuances, et cetera. And so if that is what we're trying to do, I think all of us will say, well, the way I was educated did not exactly seem conducive to that. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, I, I love the idea of a tabula rasa. Like if, if we started from scratch, what would it look like? Because I think, you know, the way we teach is so still um, influenced by the fact that the books were expensive and therefore a person had to stand in front of a group and dictate content so people could take it home. And at the time, it was incredibly um, socially advantageous to do this and, and absolutely the right thing for the time. But who on earth think now that standing in front of a lecture hall and, and, and dictating content is of any use at all? The only thing that is magic about a lecture, and I really, I really would like to be in a position where all of our students, at least every term, have at least one course that they can actually engage in a face-to-face -face way. But that's because they need to feel the magic of the love of the discipline. They need to see a person really excited about talking about something, not a person that goes and says, right, you know, turn the page and, and then go through the next topic. I mean, they can get that on the iPad. They can get that online, all of that. Is it. But the magic of the... I, I was fortunate in America when I went to Ohio State, I literally had as my lecturer, one of the founding father of the discipline of consumer behavior. And the guy was just extraordinary. He was full of stories. He was a very active consultant. And, and he would just talk to us without notes and share examples. And then we'd all bid her away and find what he was talking about in the textbook and so that. And it was, it was because of him, the sheer force of his belief in what he was doing and the vast experience that he was able to share. That is what made those lectures magical. And so I think we have plenty on campus of those legends who can really animate a, a lecture theater and, and create memorable, memorable experiences. But are they all like that? I don't think so. Do we really need to have the others suffer through that process? Because it's a, 
pretty public activity. And if you're not good at it, it's not going to be particularly pleasant for you or for the students. You'll just be able to keep them there because you're the lecturer. But you know, it's you would you would encourage people who are not good at that to do other things like curating online content and figuring out ways to sort of build projects that the students can learn from and and they might be really exceptionally good at that and not be a fantastic face-to-face -face lecturer again diversity and inclusion is not about everybody being great at everything it's enough people being great at some things and then this great collective of of people coming together to offer this full range of experiences to students. And they'll know, I mean, they kind of know now, right? They know who is a lecturer worth getting up at eight for, and the one that's just not simply worth turning up for. So my last question, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh boy, <laughs> I wouldn't give any advice to my younger self because my younger self by definition would not listen to it. So, so this would be a somewhat paradoxical thing. Uh, I would, I would just encourage her to just keep doing the things that scare her, because at the end of the day, I think this is this is where most of the learning and and joy has been is you know getting to a new country and tackling a PhD and adopting two girls from India and taking a role as vice chancellor, these things are really big challenges and there's no way you feel ready for it when you when you start. But but it's precisely because you have that conviction of being able to make a difference because you believe in what you do. I think that's that's what I would say my younger self to keep being driven by. And would you give that same advice to to students as well and people who wanted to go into leadership roles? Well, it depends on their comfort with danger and, and, and certainty, I suppose. You know, if, if somebody wanted a quiet life uh, or if people were sort of risk averse, uh, I, I would encourage them to do reckless things that are going to make them feel stressed and miserable. Um, but but for my own experience, uh, it is through those moments of... of, um, of um, not not risk taking in a kind of um, reckless manner, but but this wanting to see what else there is, and and you know to this day I'm, I'm still I'm still really cross that I won't be able to go into space. I wanted to go into space, and I wanted to you know there are lots of things that I, I wish I could do, and and uh, I'll do as many of them as I can before I'm gone. Pascal, this has been a most enjoyable conversation. I, I hope that you too have enjoyed it and you've certainly made my, my day. So oh, thank you, Jay. May the rest of your day be as energetic and um, imaginative as our conversation has been. Thank you, Judith. It's been an absolute pleasure. You have been listening to Studiosity's podcast, Reimagining Higher Education. Candid conversations within higher education, sharing stories of leadership, change, and best practice in teaching and learning visit studiosity.com.